Three weeks ago, a news report from PTI surfaced stating that a Dalit man was allegedly assaulted by a group of people from upper caste community. The victim was targeted for his appearance, wearing good clothes, sunglasses, and a coat. Although charges were filed against the assailants, no arrests have been made so far. Incidents like these serve as a reminder that caste-related violence and discrimination continue to persist in our society today. Such incidents of caste violence, untouchability, and discrimination cannot simply be ignored. They are rampant in news, and reports of such brutality based on caste are all too common. However, unfortunately, the rhetoric surrounding the origins of untouchability and the practices of untouchability itself worsens the situation. Recently, an RSS leader named Krishna Gopal claimed that the practice of untouchability did not exist in ancient India and that it came from outside. Caste issues are not limited to India or Hinduism alone. They are prevalent across religions and regions of South Asia and its diaspora. Recognizing the gravity of the situation, recently the California State University system added caste-based discrimination to its anti-discrimination policy. Incidents like the cancellation of a US-based Dalit activist at Google demonstrates the deep-rooted bias that exists towards any discussion of caste equality. It sheds light on the challenge faced in addressing caste-related issues, not only in India, but also in international contexts. Hello and welcome to Masala Trails, a podcast dedicated to all things South Asian. Today, we bring you a sequel of our previous podcast, India Colonized. In this new project, we aim to delve into not only the colonial history of South Asia, but also various aspects of the region, its people, and the challenges they face. Our goal is to bridge the gap between academia and everyday public discourse, shedding light on relevant topics for people in India and Indians across the world. Suraj Yangde, in his 2019 book, Caste Matters, says that caste is understood through various prisms, thus making it one of the most misunderstood topics of dialogue in India. Caste is thought of as synonymous with reservation, Dalits, Adivasis, manual scavenging, poverty, Dalit capitalism, daily wage laborers, heinous violence, criminality, imprisonment, Rajputs, Brahmin, Panyas, OBCs and etc. These are some of many variations that bear witness to everyday nakedness of caste. He says, what remains undiscussed and therefore invisible in multiple forms is the ways in which caste maintains its sanctity and pushes its agenda through every aspect of human life. He stresses and argues that caste plays an important role in every facet over an unthinkably large domain of public as well as private life. He proceeds to write that caste as a social construct is a deceptive substance. It is known for its elemental capacity to digress from its primary motive. And the primary motive is that of governing the oldest system of human oppression, subjugation and degradation. Originated in the Hindu social order, it has infiltrated all fates of the Indian subcontinent. And it is as old as the order of Indic civilization, and with the phenomenon of controlling human capacity, creativity and labor, 
which has been its core ideological performance secured by strict legal order caste surat says in india is an absolute sanction of the dominant class or the dominated its strict division into five categorical instances organized in horizontal capacities is an archetype of legitimized apartheid during her time at jnu dr divya encountered anti caste movements and dalit intellectual discourses where she came across arousing critiques of not only obvious forms of brahmanism as well as the question of caste and caste dynamics which was left unaddressed in so-called progressive institutions this led her to take an interest into exploring the histories of caste and especially caste preceding colonialism uh, couldn't help but kind of triangulate between the student conversation in jnu and the curriculum and i was like this is kind of a gap you know mm-hmm. i want to know more about this history of caste before colonialism there was by that point a lot of literature on caste how it changed due to modernity due to colonialism both historically and sociologically or anthropologically but okay. historically we had a lot of that origins literature from ancient india you know brahminical prescriptions um mm. there was a little bit on you know rajasthan maharashtra but only a little and i was like this is really the question the history of caste before colonialism that interests me part of the uh, sort of logical question there also being that how can we talk about changes with colonialism if we don't have a textured picture of what preceded colonialism dr divya conducted a study on the history of caste in 18th century marwad a region in western rajasthan which was ruled by the rathor dynasty for many centuries preceding the moguls themselves she found numerous records from the time which provided insight into the social interactions of the state The research revealed that there was a distinct articulation of Hindu identity in Marwar during the 18th century. This articulation predominantly revolved around the concept of caste. After extensive research into these dense and voluminous records, she argued that caste played a significant role in shaping and defining what it meant to be Hindu in Marwar during this time. so today we think of hindu as religion right religious identity yeah. it's about ritual it's about and if we want to relate it to other identities we say ha hindu muslim or even you know hindu christian hindu jain we always come up with a religious cognate for hinduism right but in this uh, pre colonial context specifically in the 18th century i found that hindu was being imagined in relation to the untouchable where the word achhep or un, which literally means untouchable was used to say well the achhep is what the hindu is not so there mm. was uh, you know a range of orders that made clear the different dimensions of this dynamic sometimes using the words hindu and achhep other times just saying don't do this because it entails you know contact with the achhep and at still other times not naming the achhep but you you know conjuring the particular communities that were imagined as unchhep as being unwelcome into this emerging hindu domain in the evidences she finds how access to temples water vaishnava rituals and segregations in neighborhood were were all based on ideas in terms of caste She also looks at how importance on dietary practices of vegetarianism and ethical emphasis on non-violence and non-harm played a role in defining caste-related norms and behaviors. And through these and various elements, she observed that these elements were serving as tools 
for the construction of a new elite Hindu identity which were primarily based on caste terms. It became evident that caste played a significant role in shaping social structures and interactions within the Marwar region in 18th century. But in reading through these archives, I was really fascinated by the elevation, kind of the pulling out of this mass of various ways in which you can name castes, the elevation of this word achep, you know, and the kind of work it is doing, the, the word the word untouchable, the kind of work it is doing in uh, making new separations, in articulating this Hindu identity was different. It's not like a particular caste was being named. Uh, this figure of the untouchable was being conjured uh, as, you know, the axis along which uh, we must make these new lines. In these records also included the Muslim, uh, the Turak or the Musalman, as uh, they are named in these records. So that also was a very fascinating insight that even the Muslim was constituted in these records in caste terms and kind of seen as a subset of the untouchable. As I mentioned before, the concept of caste playing a defining role in how Hindu identity gets shaped and defines Hinduness is not a rather new idea. I'm building on or drawing upon or uh, in that sense, I found it to very much be in consonance with the arguments made, for example, by Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, right, mm-hmm. which is that... Um, we need to pay attention to caste in our understanding of Hindu identity um, and Hinduness uh, cannot be separated from caste and particularly the figure of the untouchable. So what did the distinction of who is a Hindu and who is not a Hindu get defined? And who wanted this distinction to be placed down? Yeah, I mean, I would say that where all this term like Hindu is mobilized, right? And and also where all uh, sometimes caste separations are sought, um, right? The kinds of separations I talked about, you know, like dividing uh, residential space, water access, temple space, and also kind of uh, dividing an ethical space, you can say, in casting some people or representing some people as, oh, these people can't help but kill animals all the time. They cannot help but eat meat. So they must be singled out for extra preemptive punishment uh, or extra punishment after they have been accused of you know, taking an animal life. So there is kind of a legal ethical separation also that I trace in the book. So in tracing, if I see who are the people involved in demanding the separation and who are the people involved in getting separated out, mm-hmm. right? Who are the people enforcing the separation? That would be the state, right? We see that the makers of the separation are uh, certain castes. In many of these uh, uh, orders, they do identify themselves as using the term Hindu. In other ter- other records, they don't specify that they are Hindu and that's why they want this. But it's the same actors, right? That kind of, you know, looking at one demographic of the those identified as un- literally as actually listed in one such record as untouchable. And then the demographic of who is asking for the changes or enforcing the changes, it is the people who self-identify under this umbrella category of Hindu. So that is where I found that interestingly, there is no reference to uh, kind of our religious, as we would today understand, our religious preference. You know, I mm-hmm. have this festival or, you know, this particular holy day or this, uh, you know, um, uh, other religious group, like a problem with those people is because they all belong to that other religious group. No, mm-hmm. what really seems to be the underlying justification and logic is a reference to the caste status of the people who want separation and the caste status of the people who are we need a distance from. It's both appalling and surprising 
to observe the various manifestations of the practices of untouchability in all sorts of social circumstances, especially the ones which Dr. Divya mentions. But sometimes even evoke a sense of irony or humor. Uh, but uh, the sort of the state officer said that we have heard through our intelligence networks, through our surveillance networks, that a person belonging to, they don't use the word untouchable there, but um, uh, kind of a lowly caste. I think it was maybe an oil presser or something like that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, has brought um, a, a tray of ghee uh, to you know be sold. And you sold the ghee, you the local officer sold this ghee in the same vessels as what this person brought it in. And there it particularly invokes the logic of caste. That how could you do how could you do that? You know, and, and I again it's been a while. I mean, if I had uh, could open up my book or something, yeah. I would take it precisely. Yeah. But there's a logic of caste that you should not have used his vessel to yeah. serve yeah. the ghee to sellers too. You know, they you kind of risk them in some way. Then uh, there is this reference to how some leather working castes, you know, played holy in kind of a public space. Uh, in a particular town in this latter half of the 18th century. And again, news of this reached the the, the headquarters of this kingdom. And uh, the missive that was sent back to the local authorities saying, you know, how could you let this happen? They should have played holy within their quarter because of the fact that they came into this more public space. Women of the mercantile, the Mahajan uh, caste, were inconvenienced and they had to stay within their quarters for the fear of pollution. It specifically said Bhinta Chutti, which is means the Bhinta means pollution in, in Marwadi. Uh, that for fear of that, they had to remain within their quarter uh, and, uh, you know, next time make sure that they stick to their own space. Um, another one, and so there are many examples like this where this is kind of a sort of a violent one, but a woman was kicked while pregnant by her husband. This woman was of mercantile caste, as was the husband. And he kicked her while she was pregnant, because of which she somehow died. And however, when she was going to be, um, you know, cremated, he had a mendicant or some roaming Swami kind of figure who is described as being of another a caste called the Thoris, who later were by the by the colonial state were classed as criminal tribes, but in other records are explicitly described as untouchable from the eyes of the elites of this kingdom. So a man of this Thori caste was asked to kind of, you know, cut her womb. And I wonder if that's because, you know, this is pre, pre-modern yeah. science, yeah. before yeah. modern science, if the you know, husband thought the child could still be alive uh, or that uh, I feel like actually, you know, something the, mm. because she was pregnant, he had this procedure done and the the question or the concern of the state was how could you have in an untouchable like doesn't there it says a person of a thori caste actually it says untouchable in that record mm-hmm. how could you have an untouchable touch her body like this you know mm-hmm. so there's a very it's very simple there's no like mental gymnastics i i, I had to do <laughs> to, to see yeah that, you know, this concern with touch, you know, and then there's a very, very graphic uh, or a sort of a jarring one to modern eyes where, you know, members of the, the bhangi or, you know, the human waste clearing castes, which are at the very, very extremes of exclusion within this order and remain so today in, in contemporary India, mm-hmm. were made to spit on a person of high caste as a type of punishment on him for stealing grain. So the state asked, uh, tied him to a post and said, now you bungees spit on this man, that will be his punishment. So kind of the bungees being, <laughs> their bodily pollution being turned into a, a, a kind of a weapon of punishment, a tool of punishment. I mean, of course, the question, I mean, the fact that they had to be subjected to this, you know, yeah. um, uh, it just shows you. So it's very uh, uh, visible in these records, uh, just in terms of the very, very simple, direct idea of 
touch and contact with the body and bodily fluids and even indirectly through things touched by people of the untouchable communities from shoes to vessels. Law and the state apparatus were effectively employed to engineer and perpetuate oppressions towards untouchables. As we discussed earlier, this oppression manifested in various forms, including restricted access to religious space, rituals, water sources, and more. By leveraging the law and state institutions, those in positions of power reinforced and perpetuated systematic marginalization and deprivation of the untouchables. This not only reinforced social hierarchies, but also served to demarcate markers of status and identity within society. That again, this goes to a question of law, is that in this region, as in many other parts of South Asia, uh, but certainly in this region, custom, which is how things used to be done, right? That is a very powerful plank. That is a legal argument right there. You should do this or not do this because that's how it used to be. That's it. It doesn't. You don't need any further justification. This is the established practice and therefore it must continue. This can be both a tool of oppression and a weapon of the weak in some ways, where the weak can come and say that, you know, so-and-so is trying to evict us from doing what we always did, but we this is what we always did. Now, what's interesting is that we often don't know how those kinds of issues play out because the government usually orders that go and verify how it always was. And whatever you find, do that. And we never find out in these records what was eventually found. But in the records in which separations are being demanded, nobody is citing custom saying this is how it was, that's why we want it. There's just a kind of a implicit, sometimes explicit caste logic, a hierarchy logic, a purity logic, um, an ethical logic that we don't want to live. So, Mm -hmm. and that's where to me was really remarkable that custom is just set aside without any, um, you know, discomfort or pretending to make it custom, that, that, you know, I found that, you know, that's another way in which law is playing a role. So where is the merchant seated in this history of caste? Everyone I met outside Marwad, if I told them this is what I do, they'd be like, oh, you're studying the Marwadis, right? Marwadi is now a term for the mercantile yeah. diaspora that emerged in this region, and it basically translates to moneylender merchant castes, right? So I was like, Bhai, there are more people in Marwar than Marwadis, you know. And yes, they are also actually Marwadis, but, you know, they, they, why Why must we? But yeah. as I, after I came out of my archival research, I sat down and I noticed this pattern of how actually mercantile castes are playing a very active role in reshaping the caste order, number one. Also in kind of imposing upon their own caste members certain ethical prerogatives through uh, mechanisms of caste discipline, you know, like exclusion from the caste, refusal to marry your child if you don't follow, you know, to kind of boycott you from your marital relations, community meals. And these were the kinds of mechanisms through which certain ethical um, discipline was being imposed on members of the mercantile groups by their own caste groups, in addition to the state acting as an additional source of self-discipline for this emergent uh, group. Because while there is, uh, we, we know in the field of pre-modern, early modern, like 15th, 16th, uh, 17th, uh, 18th century South Asia, that merchants come to play an, a more and more of a role in what we would otherwise understand as the state. So they are also political actors. They are bureaucratic actors. They are also working as money lenders for the state's movement of money, tax collection, revenue assessment. We know they are playing a role in states. Uh, we also know that you know people who look like state functionaries who don't come from seemingly mercantile backgrounds are also investing in trade. So that blurring of the state and trade boundary is one of the features of the early modern period or certainly becomes more intensified in the early modern period. But one 
further question that comes from that is, how does that reshape society? Right? We understand the state gets reshaped. We understand these things. We also understand the, the economy is reshaped. This, these histories have also been written quite a lot. But how do those economic shifts and the growing participation of merchants in politics, how does that affect social life? That became to me kind of a a gap, again, yet another gap that I felt I could see that merchants are using that state power in particular regions in combination with the tremendous wealth that some of them have accumulated to remake the caste order, not just to elevate themselves among the elite, but to also add their own caste ethics of bodily austerity, non-vegetarianism, non-harm into being markers of upper caste identity when previously they were not, particularly in a region like Marwar, where Rajputs are known to be hunters and meat eaters and so on, right? And those were the dominant uh, elites of Marwar, right? And we, of course, associate vegetarianism with Brahmins preeminently. But that's another intervention that I wanted to show was that while Brahmins are in many regions the kind of the you know, pinnacles of kind of vegetarian behavior that they model. In other parts of India, particularly Western India, in fact, it's the merchants who model that kind of elite caste vegetarian behavior Mm -hmm. and are in fact more of a kind of tool of social discipline, kind of, um, you know, the remaking of life public spaces to be vegetarian spaces. Uh, That is now a dynamic we see across the country. So that we need to understand that the operation of caste extends beyond Brahminical power, where uh, other castes, we need to understand the ways in which other elite castes also uh, can become tools of the, you know, of, of kind of the remaking of caste. Customs practiced within the elite community, which were regarded as sacred, definitive, and inviolate for that particular community, transitioned into state laws that held universal applicability, impacting every individual within the state regardless of their community affiliation. This way, there was an imposition of what was caste ideal on all the subjects of the Marwa state. There I would turn, I think, to the chapters in my book, which are entitled um, Discipline and Mm Non-Harm. I think that is where, and I've actually included in in, uh, that section of my book, reproductions of like the actual physical orders, which are many, like I would say by many, I mean like, you know, the, like the long detailed ones are maybe eight, nine or 10 of them, uh, in which um, the state says, uh, decrees as law, that uh, you are no longer to, um, you know, uh, take the life of any living being or hurt any living being. And the term that is used for this is called jeev hansya, right? Jeev means life, hansya means hinsa, right? Which is harm. So harm upon life, you could say. You're no longer to do that. And it spells out what all it means by this. So obviously it means, you know, don't kill to eat, don't kill to hunt. But it also says cover the lamps uh, at night to make sure no moth flies in by mistake. Make sure you filter the water so that, you know, some creature you may not see uh, goes into that water by mistake and dies uh, Mm -hmm. because you eat it or because you boil it. Um, Uh, you know, make sure that, you know, uh, I think here are, here are these kinds of like very long uh, mm-hmm. orders. For, this is for anyone who watches the video version of this, um, you know, and, um, uh, you know, if, you know, there are bugs that live in, uh, you know, be- bed bugs in mattresses. Okay. Yeah. Even those, you know, don't kill them. Just put the mattress out in the sun, which I might actually kill them, but, you know, in the, but don't actively <laughs> kill yeah. them. It just right. says leave the mattress out in the sun. So it's like the level of care 
here that you know any living being from the invisible to the most gigantic uh, should not be hurt by by any subject uh, i think that that is an elevation into kingdom wide law of jain and vaishnav customs which mm-hmm. mercantile communities in particular particularly jainism in this region uh, mercantile communities were already living by these ethics mm-hmm. uh, these as ethical imperatives to mm-hmm. what degree you are able to follow that in everyday life is a different issue but you are already uh, on board with this way of of living certainly of not eating meat and such like as were the vaishnavas and the the groups most numerically strong and the most influential doing this were Uh, the merchants right there were also many jats had become vaishnav in this part of india uh, uh, there are also bishnois which are uh, a community that is vegetarian so certain other castes also were already vegetarian but there were so many that were not like right? rajputs uh, many of the artisanal castes any muslims um, you know who were, and and also not just muslims devi worshipers that is goddess worship in india has been accompanied by animal sacrifice that is part of being Uh, you know part of these shaktic communities those mm-hmm. communities too would suddenly find that even their ritual practice forget about whatever dietary preferences they may have were against the law so that i would say is a, is an example of a pre-existing custom of some being made into universal law for all one of the fascinating ideas that divya explores in her book is how profit transforms into social status all right um So before I can actually move on to how uh, self-conscious Hinduness gets uh, manufactured and what, how does Muslim get othered in it, I just wanted to touch on one question. Speaking about merchants, you mentioned that merchants and Brahmins uh, transmuting profit to status. Uh, if you could just elaborate on the idea of how this was this transmuting of profit into status was happening. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was basically through, um, you know, th- that the profit that these mercantile castes made, again, not just in the region where, you know, there was also a proliferation of the money economy um, in the course of, you know, 15th, 16th, uh, 17th centuries, money makes more and more of inroads as kind of, uh, you know, everyday medium of exchange, you know. So, um, you know, dealing with the state involves having money, uh, even getting married, getting divorced, um, sometimes settling, uh, you know, disputes uh, between subjects involves the, the handing over of money, whether as fine, whether as, you know, there were fees to be paid when you got married. So money is proliferating and at the local level also, uh, you know, money lenders are playing an important role, but as are they playing a major role in the functioning of much more developed state forms, <clears throat> I'm popping a, a lozenge yeah. um, um, in the, in this region. Um, so you know, merchants are um, lending money to the state, to state functionaries, to nobles. Um, they are also helping in the movement of money across vast distances within the this region of South Asia. To what extent could the possession of wealth and profit alone lead to the transfer of social status and the potential elevation for one's rank among the elites? it's it's a it's a common question i would i would say observable even today that we having wealth does not translate into status and maybe that relates mm-hmm. to my prior point about the role of virtue and so there is of course deeply inherited status right that is where you know perhaps you know it's already ideologically established why you are at the top of the social hierarchy right um in pre modern regimes land was a kind of established source of asserting status 
um, you know, the Rajputs have that. And that combines with blood, you know, the descent um, to say that I'm of this blood and this blood is sort of rooted in this land and this kind of reinforces itself and you have a claim to being the Kshatriya, the lordly, um, you know, dominant group. Then there's the Brahmin who doesn't need land per se, even though having land certainly helps, but just having that kind of ritual status, that kind of priestly status that again goes to the logic of caste is sufficient. But the merchant um, doesn't have that Brahminical claim upon status. And even if, if, if the merchant controls land, which they could buy land perhaps, or buy, you know, kind of land revenue collection rights, that that for the merchant is not is not an inherited blood-based claim. It has been bought into that status, right? So that is why you need something more to turn that economic location into kind of an accepted, um, you know, claim upon being among the region's most elite, not just say middle class or something like that, right? And so I, I think that is where I'm trying to argue. We see that process happening in the early modern period and we really get a close, like a really like, you know, ground level view. Okay, how do you make that shift? How do you make that leap? Right. And that is where I, I suggest that, you know, these the, the tool of the state of the state's law and of this uh, sort of turning to a kind of an, a performance of kind of ethical behavior and of um, elevating your particular mercantile caste ethics to being now a universal attribute of Hinduness. And again, to reiterate by Hindu, I mean an elite caste identity, not Hindu as we understand it today, which has become a far more you know, inclusive category. Uh, it has changed meaning. And so. Um, I think that is what I meant. So are the boundaries of caste rigid and impenetrable, deeply rooted and completely unchangeable as if they're written in stone? Certainly there are points, there are many ways in which, um, you know, uh, for example, there are Muslim Rajputs. Uh, For example, um, you know, there are actually uh, sort of unconventional paths to fluidity, such as a person, an enslaved person who is a concubine, comes to enjoy tremendous power in this kingdom in this in these last decades of the of the 18th century we don't know her caste origins and having concubine status can be at least in a normative sense in a kind of in an idealistic sense be seen as lowly despite yeah. that this woman uh, comes to enjoy great power so there's that kind of mobility as well then there is literal physical mobility where you could just if you're facing oppression you know you could just start up somewhere else and perhaps have a slightly better position you can't jump from being a jat to a brahmin certainly but you might find less oppressive conditions as a jat if you simply move to another you know area um so so there are those kinds of mobility but i think for me it was um you know the fact that that kind of stops when it comes to uh, whether you know when you are an untouchable those avenues of mobility are much fewer and particularly if um you know, you belong to the, to the to the castes that clear human waste. You belong to the leatherworking castes. Um, there are certain other, you know, these kinds of vagrant landless castes, uh, the so-called, you know, the, who, who are known by the names Thoris, Bavaris. Then you don't have access to that same, you know. So it's when we imagine fluidity, we must also recognize that there's not an equal amount of fluidity available to all who lived in this order. So that's, uh, you know, really what I how does a Muslim, often perceived as an outsider to the traditions and customs of India, become entangled within the realm of untouchability, considering that Islam, as argued by Muslims, does not discriminate based on caste, race, colour? So what factors contribute to this phenomenon? So how that happens is, again, I think by putting it 
so the fact that this is written in like you know orders to provinces and all of that but putting it down means that there is no need to further explain it's not like there's a justification of why is an untouchable why is a muslim untouchable mm-hmm. i would suggest that the way it is just casually inserted in uh, certain records you know yeah. it suggests that 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 this is kind of already in circulation this idea of the muslim as untouchable but i think by putting it down in legal decrees legal laws in sort of uh, rulings i think there is a that is a further cementing because what is right now being sort of you know maybe put uh, put down for the first time i don't know uh, it can be cited as custom so this language of custom can always come back later so new precedents that were established do become precedents and then they can be customary so there can be this idea that of course the muslim as a lowly person is established you know these for x y and z exclusions should be made because you know that is what you do to untouchables so mm-hmm. in terms of how i think the process that i'm tra- tracing builds on kind of pre existing um, perceptions representations understandings but actually intensifies them uh, but here again i would point to the language uh, to the world outside the law also right uh, just because the turak or the musliman is being flattened into a turak or a musliman who is also then described as a chape or untouchable it doesn't mean that there are not grid not hierarchies and not uh, distinctions among this broad category of turak and also kind of a, a kind of shading into the hindu actually in practice many groups that were musliman in this region we know from early 19th century british sort of ethnographic descriptions they were practicing only just the bare minimum of what kind of a stereotypical idea of being muslim is just you know life cycle rituals in many other ways they were practicing what their hindu neighbors were mm-hmm. so um you know so so just because there's this hard line being drawn in in law which i think is important to understanding these processes understanding shifts we must recognize the shifts it doesn't mean the shift was flattening out in practice as well so there is a complexity there At the end of our conversation I could not help but wonder about the persistence of caste and the complexities of caste beyond Marwar and transcending the historical periods of colonial and post-colonial times in our own age what factors could possibly contribute to this enduring continuum of caste dynamics because this is a diasporic community and it continues to be diasporic uh, in the 19th and 20th and centuries even today right uh, that this history gets carried outside of uh, marwar with the diaspora so there others such as you know christopher bailey um, has shown how actually mercantile castes who claim this marwari identity also work in uttar pradesh what we today call uttar pradesh then united provinces in under the british in the 19th century to uh, actually deploy very much the same kind of techniques you gather together you petition the state you work at the local level to remake space and local practice in line with your vision for how society should be mm-hmm. so they very much deploy these same kinds of uh, techniques that they have deployed successfully in 18th century marwar in other localities and mm-hmm. also they have a particular vision of what a hindu india looks like which they then uh, you know make um kind of um more broadly available which they publicize which they try to win support from by sponsoring things like uh, you know print uh, the geeta press is an example uh, other kinds of publications and all india you know organizations of marwari organization that work as pressure groups to 
you know uh, influence law including things like hindu family law um so so there are many directions in which the presence of this sort of marwadi diaspora and its very particular vision of hinduness uh congeals with i'm not saying is the only agent not at all mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it kind of joins up with many other developing uh, sort of trends and many other uh, maybe overlapping perceptions of hinduness uh, to become to shape how we understand the hindu nation today and an element of that is the caste nature of hindu identity where again it's not only coming from marwar let me be very clear but this the some of the dynamics i trace of the kind of you know ethical condemnation of uh, people groups uh, associated with meat eating Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that it is you know the, the that is something we now see playing out uh, through government very much the way it is it was done in 18th century marwar but the the way in which um, meat eating and a kind of a disgust a kind of culturally culturally generated disgust towards meat eating um, is that that kind of sentiment of disgust as uh, anthropologist joel lee has shown also in his research in, in other contexts not to do with meat eating Mm-hmm. but as the anthropologist parviz uh, ghasem fachandi has shown vis-a-vis the gujarat riots of 2002 that this meat eating was actually presented by uh, gujaratis as part of what kind of stigmatized muslims in the in the lead up to that riot you know mm-hmm. so 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 i think for me there is kind of and that is a western indian story the gujarat story is a western indian story right it's very much part of this mercantile ethical world that i'm trying to uh, highlight so i think it's that carrying out of marwar out of western india and the kind of influence these groups wield in localities and at the all india scale that i think has importance for understanding the life of the you know the vision of the hindu nation today and with that it brings us to the end of our discussion on dr devya's captivating work i cannot stress enough how highly i recommend delving into her award winning work and also exploring her other writings you'll find valuable insights and perspectives on the subject by visiting her department website which is linked in the description below as always we asked her for some recommendations for those of you who are eager to delve further into the fascinating topic and continue your exploration for the subject i would say i mean i would say that christopher bailey's um a uh, book on i think it's called what is it called rulers townsmen and bazaars is it's it's kind of a it's a dense book i would i don't know you know you would have uh, for non specialists yeah, yeah. but it's, it's a major book in the field of course mm-hmm. i think he is precisely very interested in this 19th century life of merchant groups um mm-hmm. in you know in 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 india there's anne hardgrove um on the marwaris uh, she's written about the marwari diaspora in the 20th century um is another one and um, yeah i mean i i did mention the parvis ghasem fachandis uh, the uh, pogram in gujarat book mm-hmm. but that's a hard read because he actually describes some of the he happened to be in gujarat when okay. the violence happened and it's uh, it's a hard read like i i it was not easy to read i felt very sad reading it mm-hmm. um but uh, it's not particularly about merchants but it is about this kind of you know non harm non violence ethical culture in some ways yeah and don't forget to keep an eye out for her upcoming fascinating work so now i'm embarking on my second book project uh, and mm-hmm. i have an a journal article coming out probably by the end of 2023 these things take time mm-hmm. but uh, mm-hmm. it has been accepted for publication and it is on uh, kind of the place of magic in pre colonial so again 18th century and 17th century india because there are tensions there like who can use magic 
you know mm-hmm. by magic i mean both tantra and the islamicate occult sciences mm-hmm. um, you know um, who can use them you know it is a site of power and contestation so i kind of trace that out in that article but i center it on the use of the flesh of the owl um, in magical rituals um, and how wow. that comes to be uh, yeah uh, you know uh, how the state reacts to that right. um, is is a new world but there'll be hopefully a lot more coming out from this second project of mine and i also have a forthcoming uh, article on 18th century india in a forthcoming volume on the cambridge history of of the indian subcontinent Oh that's wonderful. Uh that's really exciting. I'm I'm looking forward to the oil all flesh uh in yeah. in occult sciences. It sounds fascinating. Uh but thank you so much for joining us. It was lovely having you. Um uh, thank you for taking time for joining our podcast. Thank you for having me. This was great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode discussing Dr. Divya's work. We hope this episode has provided you with insights into the complexities of caste dynamics, roles played by merchants and its impact on Hindu identity. If you found this discussion intriguing, we highly recommend delving into Dr. Divya's award-winning book and exploring her other writings. We invite you to engage on our social media. We're available both on Twitter and on Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback is invaluable and helps us reach more listeners who can benefit from these discussions. Thank you for tuning in and we look forward to bringing you more thoughtful provoking episodes in the future. This is your host Umar Haq hosting from Ergo Studios for Masala Trails.